Much like the modern Church of Jesus Christ, the Church of Christ in the time of Peter and Paul suffered intense growing pains, demonstrating the need for divine protection, revelation, and humility on the part of the members to follow the living prophet. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome again to Gospel Doctrine. I'm Mark Holt, your host, and each week this this podcast aims to take the Come Follow Me lesson of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and provide context, whether it be historical or literary, linguistic, and my goal is to try to discuss what the people at the time would have felt as they read the scriptures and what they would have understood from the scriptures. Today's lesson is on Acts 10, chapters 10 through 15. And uh, should you care to ask a question about an upcoming lesson or about a previous lesson, please email the show at gt at gospeltoctrine.com, and I'd, it'd be my pleasure to respond to you. And as always, we appreciate your five-star reviews on iTunes, Facebook, and SoundCloud. And I begin, usually, I begin my podcast with the assumption that you've read the scriptures, and not just read them, but understood them. Now, one of the ways you can accomplish this goal I've talked about it a few times, is go to BibleHub.com. There are uh, several reasons why you might have a hard time getting the point as you read the King James Version. Not least is the, the language is used is from the 1600s, and you're, you're just going to... N- number one, the translation is not always perfect, and number two, it's translated into 1600s uh, British English. And so you would be forgiven, unless you're in the UK, the British part won't matter, but you'd be forgiven for not getting entirely what's going on. So if you go to BibleHub.com, you can look simultaneously at five different translations if you click on just the chapter number. Um, and, and that site is takes a little bit of learning, but uh, after you get used to it, you understand exactly how to find what you need. Um, and there is also, so you, you can see several translations at once if you want to see a whole chapter or if you want to see a particular verse, you can see probably two or three dozen different translations on the same page. And some of those translations are uh, more idiomatic than others, meaning some of them are in downright modern English that you would say on the street. And so it feels a little odd maybe to re- be reading the Bible in that kind of language, but I recommend that you read it once out of the LDS scriptures and then once in a translation that you fully understand, that you don't have any trouble, that you could explain it to a little child just what happened. You don't have any trouble knowing exactly what was meant by what you just read. And this is going to become more important. It was important in the Old Testament because that can be very difficult, especially in Isaiah, to, to get exactly the point. But a lot of that is the translation, and it's going to become more important as we get into the epistles of Paul because he's talking about very abstract ideas, and making logical points by proving them from the Hebrew Scriptures. And in order to follow that logic, it's important that we get exactly, uh, that each sentence makes sense to us. So I recommend you become familiar with the process of reading the Scriptures in more than one translation. And there are plenty of ways to do this. 
uh, but Bible Hub is my preferred method. So with that said, uh, let's begin in Acts chapter 10, and this is the chapter where the where we see this vision of Peter, and Peter has a vision of animals on a sheet, and the chapter opens talking about a Roman centurion named Cornelius, and he lives in a city named Caesarea, which is uh, so if you know where, if you look at a map, you know where Tel Aviv is. And if, in fact, if you're looking at a map, just look up Caesarea. But uh, in case you're in case you're wondering, so the nation of Israel sort of runs north south, and Jerusalem is about most of the way down, and about two thirds of the way towards the east. And then if you go straight to the beach, you know if you go straight left to the Mediterranean Sea, that's modern day Tel Aviv. And in biblical era, is the city was called Joppa or Jaffa. And that's where Peter was at this time. And then a day's journey north along the, along the same beach, the beach of the Mediterranean, is the city of Caesarea. And that's a Roman city. So Cornelius is in Caesarea, and he has this vision. He's, and, it, and it mentions what a righteous man he is. So he really cares. Number one, he's a worshiper of God. This is important. He, he, he worships the God of the Old Testament. He has humbled himself before God, and he prays to God, and he gives alms, and he's kind. And the point is, the point that's made is, why should he not have access to all of the saving ordinances and grace of Christ? And this point, so it's, it's important to remember, the, the author of the book of Acts has a viewpoint, right? The it feels a lot of times because it's not quite written to with modern literary techniques that he is a an un uh, an unbiased observer, but Luke very much has an agenda. So he's almost becoming a character. If you pay attention, he's almost like he's another character in the story. And Luke comes to the comes to the Christian movement. Actually, just one chapter after our lesson today ends in chapter 16, and it may be that he was already converted before that, but in any case, and and that he's heard about all these things only secondhand, or he may have observed some of them firsthand, we don't know for sure, but in any case, he has an opinion, and his opinion is clearly that which is adopted only later. So if we want to reconstruct what, what the... Christians at this time must have felt like, um, then it's important to remember that Luke has his own viewpoint. And it's, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I mean, I, I believe that it's right, it, it, especially because that's the direction the church ended up taking. But we also want to understand before they took that direction, how they felt. So as I, as I bring up some of the concerns, that's what I'm trying to do is help us to understand. And, and this isn't just uh, for historical perspective's sake. This stuff is very relevant even today because, uh, as I'll point out, we have some very close parallels in modern church history to today's lesson, and it's, it's actually quite fascinating how closely they are parallel. Um, so Cornelius is praying. He's been praying like, Lord, teach me how to worship. And finally, he gets a revelation that says, send to particular city, sent to the city of Joppa, and you're going to send to the home of one Simon a tanner, and there you're going to ask after Peter, and then Peter's going to come to you. Whatever he tells you to do, that do. Meanwhile, Peter is, he has decided to go 
to Joppa, and he's staying with Simon the Tanner. So God has told Cornelius, it's not just these vague feelings, it's not just an impression. So, so often when you and I, uh, the revelation that we receive, it's, you know, we think, oh, should I go to, you know, such and such a house and help, should I help this widow in my ward, for example? Yes, maybe I should. And you think, oh, that's just an impression of the Spirit, or is it my own idea, right? If it's telling you to do something that's good, it's probably an impression of the Spirit. But you wouldn't wonder that if you had the thought, go to Joppa and go to Simon the Tanner and ask for a man named Peter and then do whatever he tells you. This is so specific that it's obviously a different kind of revelation. And uh, Peter, later, as we'll see, he also receives this very specific revelation. Um, first, he sees a vision. And the vision isn't very specific. As, as, we, as we'll read, he doesn't quite know what to make of it. But then, after it's over, he gets a very specific type of revelation that directs him what to do with it. So Peter is on the roof of the home of Simon the Tanner, and he sees a vision of this blanket, uh, a tablecloth, and it says, knit at the four corners, meaning it's joined at the four corners. So if you imagine one of those, um, if you've ever seen a cartoon depicting a, a kid running away from home where he has a stick over his shoulder, and there's a handkerchief tied at the four corners you know, hanging from the stick, and he has his little lunch packed in there. That's, uh, I, maybe I'm the only one, but that's a that was a common way of, like Dennis the Menace would run away from home with that on his back when I was a kid. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we're thinking about here, is a rectangular sheet, and the four corners are joined together like a sack. And there's a meaning behind the shape of this, or at least something that I think is a meaning. It, it's possible, a possible meaning. And inside, as it, as it comes down to earth and then opens up, inside are all of these animals. And they are, many of them are the type of animals that are forbidden to be eaten by the law of Moses. And then uh, in the vision, Peter is instructed to rise, kill, and eat. And he says, not so, Lord, for never have I eaten anything which is common, as it says in the King James Version. Common meaning it's base, it's low, it's, it's beneath uh, the law, it's, it's outside of what is clean. And then the voice instructs him, that which the Lord has cleansed, call not thou common. So, you know, don't consider this to be beneath you, because the Lord has cleansed it. Now, where is Peter, where is Peter getting uh, this information? Where is he, what is he thinking, what is making him think that these are common? So the first thing we're going to do, we're going to read one well, we're not going to read, but I'm going to refer to you to one chapter in Leviticus, and that is Leviticus chapter 11, where it talks about all the animals that will be unclean unto the children of Israel. So it talks about the rules by which you can know what to eat. If it, if it parts the hoof and it's cloven-footed and it chews cud and it's a mammal, then you can eat it. And he talks about what you can eat in the, um, the aquatic animals and birds, how you can determine whether they're clean or not. And it's clear that it, within this blanket are animals that are outside of that rule. So that's Leviticus chapter 11, where you learn what the law of Moses has to say about that. Now there's one other chapter that talks about whether um, how something is rendered unclean. If a body dies in a tent, or if a person dies in a tent, then anyone that touches the dead body is unclean for seven days. Now, if you just touch an unclean animal's body, or if you touch an unclean animal, 
you're you're not clean, you're ritually impure according to the law of Moses. You're not to partake in, in temple ordinances until eventide. But if you uh, have touched the dead body of a man or you're present when he dies, then you're unclean for a week. And any vessel that is within the tent when he dies that's not covered, then that vessel, the contents of that vessel are also unclean. So you have to pour the water out. But the, the fact that these, the corners of the sheet are knit, it's a closed vessel. And I, I believe it's significant. So that's Numbers chapter 19. And I'm, and I'm thinking specifically about verse 15. It says, Every open vessel which hath no covering bound upon it is unclean. So the, the point is, God is giving to or showing to Peter a closed vessel full of animals that are unclean, but the fact that it's closed is showing God has rendered this clean, and here, and here you are, you're looking at clean animals. Arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord, I've never eaten unclean animals. And the response of God is, that which God hath cleansed, call not thou unclean. So Peter has the same response, and then the, the vision ends, and then it's repeated. So this is repeated three times. And one of the things that I, one of the myths that I want to dispel is that this is a vision instructing Peter that you can now eat whatever you want. And there are a few reasons why I believe that that's just absolutely not the case. Scripturally, that's not supported. Um, and, we'll, and we'll talk about exactly where that idea came from uh, in just a minute. So um, the first thing that that Peter does is he this vision ends, it happens three times, and then in Acts chapter 10, verse 17, Peter is sitting there wondering what's going on, as it says, um, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, right? So he doesn't know what it means. If this was a vision about you are now authorized to eat whatever you want, then this would have been very clear. But as we'll see, the events show this vision has a specific meaning, the, the depiction of these animals that are outside the law of Moses is uh, very clearly meant as a metaphor, that the gospel is now to be spread beyond what has been kosher, quote-unquote, and kosher can mean, according to the law of Moses, about things that are more than food. And um, so that, that's clearly the meaning, because while he's wondering what it means, then there's a knock at the gate. And here are the messengers from Cornelius. And that's when Peter receives the revelation. Go with these men, and I've told him exactly that he should come to this house, whatever. So Peter receives another of these types of revelations. It's more than a prompting. It's very specific. Here's the house you're to go to. Here's the person you're to talk to. Here's what you're to do. And the, this, this voice, this uh, revelation to Peter is, here's exactly what I've told Cornelius. And so he's been instructed that whatever you ask him to do, that, that you're to do. It's a, it's a kind of revelation um, that, that's way more uncommon than just feeling a spiritual prompting or a confirmation of truth. It's actually um, disclosing and imparting knowledge that you wouldn't have had in any other way. It's giving you specific information. I've, it's one that I've personally not experienced. But Peter, as a prophet, is... is hearing exactly what the Lord would have him do, and then he follows it. So um, as we find out, so Peter Peter follows them, and um, the next day they leave, and the day after that they get to Caesarea, and then Peter is in the home of Cornelius the centurion. And he says something that I think uh, 
we should talk about a little bit, which is, you can tell that I'm here talking to you. Uh, in verse 28 of Acts 10, you know how, ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So two things in this verse. Number one, Peter is telling them, uh, he's informing them about a Jewish custom, and they're all. he says, ye know. So they obviously already are aware of this custom. So it's worthwhile for us to discuss what this custom is. Now, the the directions to the children of Israel as they begin to move into the land of Canaan is you are to displace the Canaanites. Don't make your living among them. Don't marry their daughters to your sons. Don't marry your sons to their daughters because then you'll follow after their gods. You are to eschew their ways and in many cases you're to conquer them and kill them. So these were the instructions to the Israelites, and for the most part, they were not obedient to those instructions. Now, after the exile, right, after the after the Israelites return from Persia and begin again to occupy the land of Judea and Samaria, they have a different attitude. They are so zealous, as Paul, as Paul has been described, as he self-describes. Right? They're so zealous in keeping the law of Moses that they want to make sure that they, can't, they cannot disobey the law of Moses in any respect. And so they, they have concocted this lore, you might say. So there's the, the Haggadah and the Halakha. One is law and one is lore. And the Mishnah and the Talmud, they're, they're these works that, where the rabbis over the centuries have their collected wisdom on how one is to interpret and keep the Law of Moses. And so this is, these are the traditions that are built up. So originally the law was, don't intermix with the Canaanites. And that became, at the time of Jesus, you can see now why Jesus would say, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. What he meant was, you are... Uh, you're so worried about these little things, but then you're also guilty. You have no problem with transgressing the whole of the law, as Joseph Smith put in the Joseph Smith translation, right? So uh, they have they have taken their traditions and elevated them to the status of law. So Jesus had no problem breaking these traditions. He didn't break the law of Moses ever, but he because this was these were the holy commandments to him, but. He had no problem breaking those additional man-made commandments that had been added on top. And the, the scribes and Pharisees were so serious about them that they had elevated them to the status, in many cases, uh, above the actual law of Moses. As Jesus described, you will take uh, something that the law of Moses would command you to give to your parents for their sustenance in order to keep the commandment to honor your father and your mother, but because you say to yourself, oh, this is a gift for God, then you can just keep it and use it yourself, and you don't have to give it to your parents anymore. So by doing that, you're making the law worthless. You can you can twist it to mean whatever you want because you have this tradition that you've elevated above the law. So, so here is an example of a tradition. So Peter, at this point, is not breaking the law of Moses, even though he's saying, you know that it is an unlawful thing. This is a specific, this word has a specific meaning. He's not just saying it's illegal, you know, according to the laws of our country. He's using the words that say, this is outside of the law of Moses, this is outside of the Torah, the scriptures, that everyone that believes as I believe would accept, right? It's wrong for me to be here. I would never do this, except God has showed me. Now, the second thing in this verse that we want to discuss is 
God had showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, what did God show Peter? He didn't show him that he shouldn't call any man common or unclean. This vision was about animals. And now we know that Peter has understood this as a metaphor to talk about people. So this is what this this is what this vision means. It doesn't mean Peter, you can eat whatever you want outside of the these animals that are discussed in Leviticus 11. This is not what this revelation is about. This revelation is about specifically you should not consider anyone to be beneath learning the gospel. Now Jesus did this during his own life, although he didn't take uh, initiative to carry the gospel to those outside of what you might call the children of Abraham. Now, remember, the Jews would have considered even the Samaritans, those who were descendants of uh, the northern kingdom intermixed with the transplants by the Assyrians. We talked last week a little bit about the history of Samaria. Um, but, But Jesus considered them to be within his Uh, mandate to preach to them. And so the the apostles did as well. And so we've already seen that they they had no problem going into Samaria and making many converts there and teaching even outside of the the, the lands of Israel, teaching outside those lands to Jews. But here is Peter now going actually to a Gentile's home and he baptizes them. So what the experience that he has, and he brings some of his followers with him, is that Everyone listening to him has an experience similar to what happened in the day of Pentecosts. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is so strong that they have this rebirth. They have this, um, this outpouring of the Spirit where they have gifts of the Spirit and the gift of tongues. It comes upon them, and it's obvious to Peter, these men have received the gift of the Holy Ghost. He knows he can't. He doesn't have the power to do that. He has the power to... Uh, direct that God will do it, but Peter himself doesn't control the Holy Spirit, and he's well aware of that. So the fact that God has chosen to bestow it upon everyone that he's talking to is a sign to Peter, wow, we have been missing the fact that Gentiles are worthy of receiving baptism as well. So he says to those people that came with them, uh, you know, <laughs> it's obvious that we have to baptize. Who who can tell me that I'm going to refuse baptism to these people? Nobody says that to Peter. And uh, so we see in verse 44 of chapter 10, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision, this is a phrase that means, so now, now there's a division, right? As soon as this happens, there's a division in the people of Christ. There are those who are of the circumcision, meaning before they became Christians, they were Jews. And then there are those who are not of the circumcision, meaning that they were Greeks or they were Romans or they were some other nationality and had never converted to Judaism before they converted to Christianity. Now, up until this point, they had an option to become Christians, but that meant going through the rigorous and um, often painful and difficult process of converting first to Judaism. Judaism was never a religion that sought converts spiritually. They sought to reproduce by, or they sought to expand by reproduction. And they had servants join them, and they had foreigners join them, and, and if those people wanted to, then they would say, well, I guess you can, you know, be part of the, our national identity, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, if you want to. But they didn't make it their business to go out and convert all nations. That just wasn't their mandate. 
and they didn't see that as their as their role in the world. They were to be a light, but not to have people join them just to show them what it was to worship God. And now uh, that's no longer the case, and there is a division. And what Peter discovers is they don't have to go this difficult route through first becoming part of the people of Israel and then adopting Christianity, as it has yet to be called, but adopting the, the doctrine of Christ, uh, become a follower of Christ. What they, the, what they did call it was the way. Jesus described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And that word, the way, is, a, is uh, one of the ways that, one of the words that the apostles used to describe their new religion. They don't, it's not even clear that they consider it yet to be a separate religion from Judaism. They would have all called themselves Jews and said, we're, we're a messianic uh, offshoot of Judaism, but we, you know, we just believe in Judaism, and we also believe Jesus is the Christ, and every Jew should believe that. Like this is the true way to follow our religion. So what they, what a mainstream Jew would have thought of Peter and the others was that they were now in an apostate condition. But what Peter and the others and in Paul now would have thought of mainstream Jews was that it is they who are in the apostate condition. So it's an interesting split. Now this, now this division is becoming more widespread to the converts that are coming in. So this division first appears here in the home of Cornelius. And uh, Peter says, Can any man forbid water that these should be, not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized. So that's the end of Acts chapter 10. That's the story that happens. Peter is taught of the Lord that he needs to go to their home to the home of these Gentiles and not feel that it's beneath him. And, the, and he has this vision that is about men and not about food. Uh, there's another lesson from this chapter, and that is that the, uh, the idea of the prophet is not always present in, uh, in Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament times. There are times when there's a clear prophet prophetic leader of the people of Israel. And there are equally many times when there are prophets, plural, and it's not clear which one is authoritatively speaking on behalf of God. So you, if, you, if you think about a prophet who is in charge, you would think about Moses and Samuel, who was one of the judges of, of Israel, and Ezekiel, who was the leader as the Israelites are led into exile in Persia, or Elijah, who uh, calls down fire on the priests of Baal, right? If you were a follower of Jehovah, you would definitely have considered Elijah the prophet, the one who call, <laughs> called down the famine to be the leader, and Elisha who followed him. But then other times, and, and, and probably Isaiah fit this same description as well, but there were plenty of times, hundreds of years, where you would have said, oh, there is a prophet in Jerusalem, there's a prophet of Jehovah here, there's a prophet who follows Jehovah there, uh, but not the prophet. And what we see in this chapter is it's only the prophet that could have had this significant of a revelation because it's going to affect everyone. And this, this was the question that the disciples meant to ask when they were saying, who should be greatest in the kingdom of God? They were saying, you know, Jesus, if you're, let's say you're Elijah of today's time, who's going to be your Elisha? Who's going to follow you over the River Jordan and then come back with your mantle on his shoulders, Right. Um, that was the that was the thing that they were discussing among themselves, and Jesus declined to answer the question at that time. But he made it clear in other times that uh, he said to Peter, "I'm 
I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. You know, you're Peter. I'm on this rock. I'm going to build my, my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So you are going to be in charge. You're going to have the keys. You're going to be the prophet, and it's really important that you're that the people who would unite themselves to my church, to my way, that they're willing to humble themselves and follow your voice. And as we'll see, this this becomes a controversial act that Peter has performed. And that's evident right away in chapter 11. The apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles... So Judea sort of begins a little bit east of Caesarea, right? And extends all the way to the east. Uh, the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And, would, and when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised, and did, didst eat with them. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning. So he told them, and then we have another account of his vision, right? And um, we skip forward a little bit. He, he basically runs over everything we've already heard. And it's interesting because we get three accounts he, he first, Luke first tells us the story, and then uh, Peter rehearses it to the centurion, and then now as, as he gets back to Jerusalem, he tells it a third time. So that's interesting. Peter denies Christ three times. He has this vision, or then Christ asks him to feed his sheep three times. Then Peter has the vision three times, and then he relates the vision three times. I, I believe that that is... Uh, deliberate on the part of Luke to show us that this really was from God. This is sort of a symbol. Uh, this this three t- repetitions is a symbol that something is really serious to God. God takes God takes it seriously, and it's intentional. It's communication from God, possibly. In in my own interpretation, that's what I read as I as I see something repeated three times, especially um, when they occur in the life of Peter. So Peter talks about them receiving the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 18, uh, he says, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, this these are just a subset of the people that are, quote-unquote, of the circumcision that are in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, very next verse, we're now in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as Phenis and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. So the, the Christians have been scattered by fear. This, is, uh, this shows that the, the martyrdom of Stephen, the murder of Stephen, had, had uh, quite the opposite effect that it was intended to have. What the Sanhedrin wanted to happen was they wanted people to stop worshiping Jesus and stop pretending that uh, Jesus had any power or that he'd risen from the dead. And so they killed Stephen. And of course, all these new converts are like, we don't want to be killed as well. If we stay in Jerusalem, we're going to die. And many of those people had come from outside of Jerusalem. They were there for the Feast of Pentecosts. And so, of course, what did they do? They, they went back home and they're there in their synagogues. They're, they're there among the Jewish communities in their hometown. And they're going to take with them because they have been living for a, for a certain amount of time. They'd been living in Jerusalem, having all things in common. I mean, they felt, they felt very united with the saints, the, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. 
And so they want to carry the same message and the same unity and the same love, as well as the doctrine and the salvation that, that, that has become now so dear to them. They've all carried it home with them. And some of them have undoubtedly been doing missionary work, as we'll read about, but, but many of them, most of them probably, have been doing missionary work by simply going home and talking about what they knew. And so there are communities, there are churches, as they come to be called, springing up all over the, the surrounding countrysides. And so this is what this verse is describing. They're preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them. We're now in verse 21 of Acts 11. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. So if Acts chapter 10 was about Peter, now we're shifting the narrative again to Paul. Um, and it talks about Barnabas a little bit. Then then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. We're in uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So now, from this point on, the name Christians is used to apply to those people who are following Christ. It's it's still not... The, I would... I would probably say, this is my opinion, that they still didn't consider themselves to be a separate religion, right? They don't, they don't think they're the ones who have changed. Nevertheless, they're different from the, the way Jews have always been. And so I would get, when it says the disciples were called, it doesn't say they called themselves Christians first in Antioch. They were called. So people start to apply this name to them. Oh, these are the followers of Christ. These are Christians. Um, and then this just comes to be the name of their new religion as it becomes clear that it's really not the same as it was. And this is not an instantaneous thing. It's a gradual thing. Um, let's talk about the word Christians. So first of all, this is a word with a history buried in it. And so it's, I think it's worthwhile to think about what language did it first appear in. The biggest clue we have to that, in my opinion, is what language, we, ask, we just simply ask the question, what language was the New Testament written in? And everybody knows that the, the New Testament was written in Greek. The, why would you write the New Testament in Greek if not because the vast majority of the people who are following Christ, who are now called Christians, are speaking Greek? It's clear that everybody who is following Christ, either speaks Greek, reads Greek, or knows somebody who does, and therefore this is going to be accessible to the greatest number of people. And then if we have to translate it from here, we can, but we're going to write it originally in the language that is going to have the widest possibility of circulation. And Antioch was the capital. So if Jerusalem is sort of the regional capital of Judea and Samaria, then and it, you know possibly as far north as Galilee, then great. It's, it's, a, it's a, a seat of the religious people known as the Jews, but a Roman who had been widely traveled would not have considered Jerusalem to be a great city. On the other hand, Antioch is a huge city, which is a capital of 12 Roman provinces, including the one in, containing Jerusalem. So Antioch is sort of the, the huge city where, you know, you might consider that to be New York City, where, or, you know, if, if, uh, if Rome is New York City, then Antioch is Los Angeles. You know, it's on the other side of the country, but it's well populated. And 
maybe uh, maybe Jerusalem is like Phoenix or something. It's it's a capital of the local place where it is, but it's it's not this worldwide metropolitan center. And so Antioch would have had many languages spoken there. But we can assume that the the Jews there were Hellenistic Jews, meaning they spoke Greek and they were uh, followers of predominantly Greek culture. This has a couple of of consequences. The first one is that they would have spoken Greek, but the second one is um, Greek culture meant that, and, th- and this, this may seem a little uh, crass, but people would know if you were circumcised, uh, to put it kindly. Um, to, to go into a little more detail, men spend a lot more time naked in Greek culture than they did in Jewish culture. So they go to the gymnasium, um, uh, or any time that they're exerting themselves in athletic contests, this was just Greek culture that men did so naked. And so if you, if you were going to convert to Judaism, this had a real-world consequence, right? If you were to convert to Judaism, then everyone would know if it, it would be sort of a, an irreversible, not just physically, but social change that you would have to make in order to convert to Judaism to then convert to Christianity, so it kind of meant leaving everything behind, your social status, your friends, and uh, not that people should not have been willing to do those things in order to convert, but obviously there are some people who are going to be willing to do, to do that and some people who were not. So this is why I make the point that they are Hellenistic Jews living in Antioch, and uh, there are probably some that weren't, but this is the culture that is in Antioch. So the word Christian is probably a Greek word, and a, it is a Greek word. So Christos is the, the Greek word for Messiah, meaning the anointed one. And then Christianos is the Greek word, meaning Christians. And anos is actually a Latinized suffix. So what, is, what does anos mean when you add it on to the end of a noun? It means belonging to. And when it's applied to people, this is really interesting, right? This, this may or may not have been uh, 100% intentional, and all of these little shades of meaning may not have been um, exactly desired by everyone who prescribed the name. Then again, maybe they were, so I think it's worth discussing. So, um, for example, if Augustus Caesar had slaves, they were called Agustanos, meaning the, those belonging to Augustus. So what does the word Christianos means? It means those people... Now, let's examine what a slave was in, uh, in Jewish culture and in the Old Testament. First of all, as Americans or as those... Uh, I, I, pr- I can presume most of my listeners are products of Western culture, and if you're not, then uh, you might want to look up what American slavery was like. But it has, it has such a terrible, terrible history... And even today, that even today, the connotation, the word slavery conjures up these terrible and evil uh, memories. And this was not the same, it, it did not mean the same thing in Jewish culture, right? The, the institution of slavery was not as we know it in modern slavery. It was more like indentured servitude, very much closer to that. I'm not saying it was a good thing, right? I'm not saying it was a desirable state of affairs. Nevertheless, it was just simply not the same slavery, even though we describe it with the same word. And so the reason I make that point is to say 
that, um, for example, in the in the Greek New Testament, there are two words that are translations of older words from the Hebrew Old Testament. One of them is translated as bond slave, and one is translated as handmaiden. They're the male and female versions of the word a slave or a servant. So it's sometimes translated slave, sometimes servant. And when it's distinguished by gender, it's bond slave or handmaiden, right? So what does Mary, Mary uses this word. This word is used several times in the scriptures by women who self-apply it, handmaiden, usually applying it, I'm, a, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. And what that means is I belong to God, God, I'm his bond slave. I have pledged my service to him and he can tell me to do whatever he wants me to do. And so that's what this word means. Christians actually has all of these shades of meaning in the, in the way that it's formed from a Latin suffix to a Greek word. It means those who are bond slaves of the anointed one of God, the one who is chosen to fulfill the promises made to the line of David. And isn't that interesting? So when we take upon ourselves the name of Christ and we call ourselves Christians, what that means is I am choosing to become a slave to God and to Christ and to his anointed, to God's anointed. And I belong to him. He can tell me to do whatever he wants me to do. And I have pledged that I will perform that task. Now, similarly, in return, I think it's interesting. If you go back and read John chapter 16, well, we'll go back to John uh, yeah, let's go to John 15, verse 15, when Jesus says, Henceforth I call you not servants, but friends. Jesus was, it's almost as if Jesus was foreshadowing a time when they would call themselves the servants of Christ or the, or the bond slaves of Christ. Jesus is saying, if, if I tell you, the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've told you what the Father is communicating to me, and I've involved you in my plans. I've told you we're going to go out and preach the gospel to the whole world. And so you're not my servants, but you're my friends. So on the one hand, we pledge to be the servants of Christ, the bond slaves, the handmaidens of Christ. And on the other hand, he's telling us, he, so we, we prostrate ourselves before him and he lifts us up to a status that is equal to him or near equal to him. Isn't that fascinating? But first we have to go through this uh this humbling of ourselves before him. And all of, to me, that's what, those are the meanings that I see in the word Christian. And I thought I would just take that word apart a little bit and examine it. And uh, it may be that the, that it had all of those shades of meaning when it was first applied, and it may be that it didn't. But it seems like it's possible that it did. That's Acts chapter 11. So uh, Acts chapter 12 is about Herod. Now, Herod, so at that point, it says, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. So he's tired, as the Jews were tired, of the, the growing power that is enjoyed by members of the church, the growing support among the people. What does a man like Herod want but to be approved of and loved, but if not loved, then feared by his people? And what opinion do Christians, do followers of Christ, have of Herod? the opposite opinion that he wants them to have. So are they likely to obey him, support him in his wickedness? No, they're not likely to do any of those things. They're likely to do the bare minimum they have to for him and no more. And so he's not going to have good feelings toward any follower of this sect. And uh, obviously, 
in the in the case of James, the brother of John. So this is the second counselor, basically, in the first presidency, right away here at the beginning, martyred like Stephen was. He killed them. He killed him with the sword. Whether that it means that he captured him and took his head off in prison, or whether he sent out men to kill him where he stood, we don't know. So now we have the story of Peter's second escape from prison. If you remembered earlier, he he and John were put in prison one night. And then they were still there the next day. They went on trial. Then they were put in prison one night, and then they were freed. They weren't there the next day, and they had to be found in the temple preaching about Jesus. They, then they were put on trial. And now here's the third time Peter's imprisoned, at least uh, that we have record of, and he's going to be killed, right? Uh, Herod is is definitely going to execute him because we know that he has the will to do it, and we know he has the the means to do it. And for whatever reason, he hasn't faced reprisals by the Romans for executing someone. However, he worked that out, even though he didn't have the authority to do that. In Jerusalem, he didn't have the authority to do that. But nevertheless, we, we know that he would. And so what happens? But Peter is freed miraculously from prison. In fact, it, it's, it happens so miraculously that Peter thinks he's in the middle of a vision. And the the, his, the chains fall away and his jailers, they're sleeping right beside him and they remain asleep. And so he thinks he's in a vision. They walk through the jail, they go out through the bars. And then once they're in the middle of the city, um, the, the angel says, okay, now you're free and leaves. And then Peter, he realizes, he pinches himself and realizes, whoa, I really am awake. This is really happening. And where does he go? He goes to the home of um, a man who's it said a man named John whose surname was Mark. Now this is just uh, the 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 way that this is translated. The way we would say it today is John Mark, right? You don't say John whose surname is Mark. You know that the surname comes after the name. So uh, the fact that his surname is Mark, John Mark just became known as Mark to distinguish him from the other Johns that are depicted in the New Testament. He is the one who would write the very first gospel to be written. What is generally accepted today is the first gospel, and and. Uh, his home is near enough to this jail, which we generally assume to be in the southwest portion of Jerusalem, what is today known as Mount Zion, uh, near what's, if you look at a map of the old city of Jerusalem and you look up Zion's Gate, that's right in the center of Mount Zion, and around that place would have been the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, possibly the palace of Pilate, and the jail was likely there where Peter was held. It could also have been the Antonia Fortress, which is just a little bit north of the Temple Mount. But um, the fact that John Mark's home is nearby, many people think that this was on the southwest, uh, the, you know, sort of uphill from the rest of Jerusalem, and that this was John Mark, they kind of think, and I've discussed this before, that John Mark may have been the one who provided the upper room for Jesus. In any case, Jesus end, or uh, Peter ends up at the home of John Mark, after a very short walk, like he's he's not going to want to be out for an extended period on the streets because he just escaped from jail. So he goes to the closest place he knows, and and another reason why the home of John Mark might have been, or the home of John Mark's mother, where John Mark was living, uh, might have been an important place, is that many of the believers are gathered there, and they're in the process of playing, praying for Peter uh, when he shows up. And it's, 
it's so shocking to the to the woman who answers the door that she runs in without opening the door and says, Peter's outside. And they all say, oh, it's his angel. You know, he's dead. It's his ghost. And uh, no, they come in and open the door. And he says, look, I've been miraculously freed from prison. They thought for sure, right? They they probably thought Jesus is, Christ is going to save us miraculously from all these things as he has before. I mean, remember, Peter and John were already released from prison once. And then James is killed. And Stephen is killed. And so they no longer have this confidence that no matter what comes, they're all going to be spared. They realize, okay, Jesus was killed. Even though he came back from the dead, uh, we know that Stephen's been killed and he didn't come back. And James has been killed. He didn't come back. And if we lose Peter, what next? And so they're in there praying like, wow, we just don't know what's to become of us. And then the very thing they're praying for, Peter, their leader, their prophet, shows up at the door alive. And they it was just a miracle beyond any imagining and any hope. So then you might be reading this and you're thinking, okay, great, but he got out of jail, but they're going to look for him, and Herod's going to be upset, and so he's escaped for today, but that's just going to make him all the more hated. Well, what does Herod do when he wakes up? The first thing he does is he kills those two jailers who were sleeping on either side of Peter, poor guys who were put asleep by an angel. They had no power whatsoever. But then um, Herod is making a speech, and he is he looks so regal and he has such uh, a presence that everyone says this is the voice of god and of course herod doesn't give the credit to god that he has had this effect on those listening and the way the scripture describes it is the angel of the lord smote him because he gave not god the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost so Uh, Herod wanted to kill Peter, but he didn't last too much longer, and Peter outlived him. Now, so we've sort of gone from Peter, then to Paul, then back to Peter, and now we're on Paul again. And we have one more Peter episode, and then it's interesting because the book of Acts then basically shifts to being a book of just Paul's missionary journeys. Well, here's the first, sort of the first installment of that, and... We get, we get a story about uh, Paul traveling around all of Turkey and other and what would be present-day Turkey and the environs and making many converts. Paul, Paul clearly, in this chapter, he's clearly establishing that it's his mission to first share the, share the gospel with the Jews. So everywhere he goes, he goes to the synagogue and shares it with them. But then he shares it with the Gentiles. This this vision of Peter is already starting to be widely accepted. And as I mentioned in our special episode, it's interesting to pay attention. It's, it's, I'm very grateful that Luke has preserved to us what scriptures the, these apostles are using, are quoting, in order to preach about Christ's need to be resurrected. Because we know that the apostles learned from Christ himself how the Hebrew scriptures uh, portended all of these things for him. The, the Hebrew scriptures did not just say that Christ would come in glory, but they also prophesied that Christ would need to suffer and die and be resurrected. And Christ taught them which scriptures those were. So we can see by what scriptures they use, we can sort of guess at uh, what scriptures Christ would have taught them. And I think it's a worthwhile study. Uh, we, we spent about an hour and a half on that a few weeks ago, so check that out if you're interested. Okay, um, now we're in chapter 14 of Acts, 
and the persecute so the the acceptance is growing beyond what anybody would have expected but so is the resistance and the persecution so we saw it from Herod Agrippa and now we see it from the Jews throughout throughout the travels of Paul so one of the places that Paul uh, visits is called Iconium and Paul has a lot of success there so first he's in the synagogue and then he speaks outside as well it's it's almost like the 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 journeys again this is another similarity between Paul and Alma the Younger going to the Zoramites. First, he speaks within the the holy, you know, the Ramiumptum to these these Zoramites who have this religion that they believe in, and then he goes outside and finds the people who are all wanting to hear him because they have no religion. They've been kicked out of their religion, and so Paul first goes into this synagogue, and then he goes outside. He finds converts, plentiful converts in both places, but the Jews who aren't willing to hear him, they are so threatened by him that it's obvious that they they get word that they're going to be stoned if they if they stay. Paul Saul and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas. And so they get out of there and they go to a city called Lystra. And there in Lystra, Paul performs this miraculous curing. It's very similar to what Peter and John did with this man who'd been lame from birth, sitting on the steps of the temple. And they lift him up and he runs into the temple and everyone can see. And it's so notable a healing that many people believe that many people come to hear and then then they're struck by the Spirit. So something similar happens here. Um, Paul heals a man who's been lame from birth and he just says, and, he, and, and it's interesting because the some of the events are the same. Paul is looking right at him and he perceives that he has faith to be healed. He's not asked to heal him. And so he says, Rise up and walk. Stand upright on, their, on, on thy feet. And then the people see what, what has happened. Now, Paul has a slightly different reaction uh, to this miracle here in Lystra than, he, than Peter and John did in Jerusalem. The people here want to worship him because only God can do something so miraculous. And so they are seriously about to sacrifice animals to Paul. And it says here they, they, <laughs> they scarcely stopped uh, in in uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 8, with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. So this is, uh, but this this is a sign of how much success Paul is having, that people have witnessed his miracles and are believe, willing to believe that he has been sent from God, if not God himself. And so it would be my guess that Paul all Paul has to say is, look, uh, I'm not God, but I am a messenger from God, and God wants you to act a certain way. And he would have found many people willing to listen. But what happened? The people from Iconium who were angry with Paul and others from Antioch, they followed him there. And they are so persuasive to those people who also hate Paul there in Lystra that Paul is stoned. It says, having stoned Paul, we're in Acts 14, verse 19. Having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Now, I want to draw your attention at this point to a scripture you remember in Acts chapter 9. That was the chapter in which Saul becomes Paul. Saul sees his vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. So, in that chapter, when uh, Ananias is given the, the vision, hey, I want you to, Ananias, there's a man named Saul He's here in Damascus. He's been struck blind. I want you to go heal him. And he says back to the Lord, he says, Lord, uh, 
don't you know this is the man who's been persecuting us? He's killed people. Um, and we're in Acts chapter 9, verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard of this man by many of this man, how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. So here's what I want to point out. Verse 15, the Lord, hath, the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So let me just resume what had just happened. First thing, Saul was one of the people present in the trial of Stephen. Right? We, we know that those who were watching Stephen be tried, they looked on his face. It was lit up as if he were an angel. And then describes his vision of God. And then describes the, the way that he was executed. And that Saul was there uh, approving of it. Right? And later on, uh, he describes his own penitence. And then... We know we penitence as he became closer and closer to Christ and as he followed Christ, but we don't quite understand what made the change. So here at the before the ministry of of Paul even could begin, one of the followers of Christ, the man who healed him, is given an insight, right? You think that he got off lightly, but he was, you know, when we think about Paul, we think, oh, he he didn't have to actually humble himself, he was an angel appeared to him, or God himself appeared to him and converted him. He didn't have to go through this mighty change of heart on his own behalf. And uh, I would just offer you another way of looking at this. Uh, it says the, the, the very witness that was born to the man who would heal him says how much he would suffer. I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name, right? So the, the calling of Saul was not uh, to be easily converted from evil to good in one day and then have it easy after that. The calling of Saul was to suffer great things in the name of Jesus. So he had witnessed and taken part in and consented to a murder of one of the great prophets of the New Testament, Stephen. And now here he is, he's come full circle, suffering the same thing on behalf of the very same cause. And so it's, it's not just justice, it's mercy for, for Paul to be able to suffer this because it's a way for him to gain forgiveness and empathy into the kind of suffering that he had brought. And I don't want to say it's karma. Like that karma uh, would con convey the idea that it's God getting even, but it's God teaching him and allowing him the opportunity to learn and to repent and to, and to rise above his former acts. I mean, I imagine that he carried a lot of guilt with him about what he had allowed to be done to many Christians and this is his way of, uh, of feeling like, and, and this is just me imagining this, right? But it, it's his way of feeling like I have suffered uh, the things that I caused others to suffer. Now, uh, if you remember, the way that stoning was carried out is that the people who would witness against you, the first witness, would push you from a height of what was described as twice the height of a man. So let's say a two-story building, uh, you were pushed and perhaps your hands were bound behind you, or perhaps they weren't. But in any case, the attempt was to get you to land on your head. And if that fall didn't kill you, then the second witness would come with a large stone and try to kill you with that. 
And if that didn't kill you, then the community joined in. All the witnesses and everybody who had uh, decided that you were worthy of death would then stand right above you and try to drive the stones down with so much force that they would end your life. So this this was a, a, a method of execution that could either be very quick or it could be very drawn out and painful and almost like torture. So what can we learn, what can we assume about what Paul has just been through? They, it, it happens so quickly, it's only part of a verse, it's a few words, and yet uh, we know enough about it to, to understand a little bit more. Paul would have suffered so much for them to believe he was dead, right? We know one thing, that we know two things. In verse 19 of Acts 14. So Acts 14, verse 19. Um, there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he, he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. So, uh, two things. Number one, this is a miraculous healing. This is not just Paul um, not quite having been finished off. I imagine he suffered every bit as much as Stephen suffered and anyone else who'd ever been stoned suffered. He felt every ounce of the pain. And yet, and, and, and he was hurt to the point where they believed he was dead. He, wasn't, he probably was barely breathing. His heart was probably not beating a ton. He would have stopped bleeding. So he was very close to death if not fully dead, they supposed him to be dead, and they drew him out of the city. They dragged him out, right? And they left his body as garbage on the side of a road. And so his disciples gathered around him thinking, what are we going to do now? And then he rises up. That Nothing is made of this. Luke doesn't want to glorify someone who was his mentor, right? So what do we know about Luke? We know the, the supreme admiration he holds for Paul. And yet, he also wants Paul to benefit from this experience of suffering by not, by not giving him reason to aggrandize himself, if that makes sense. These are my perceptions of Luke's motivation. Uh, so this is not doctrine, right? This is just my interpretation of what I'm reading. I believe that Luke has great love for Paul and great respect, such profound respect that rather than try to build, try to glorify Paul, he recognizes that Paul's glory is not to be found in making his exploits seem daring or seem like anything that he deserves any glory in and of himself. He knows that Paul would not appreciate that kind of treatment in a literary sense in his, from his biographer. The, the kind of treatment that Paul would, would appreciate would be to treat him like a humble follower of Christ, just one more, the least of the apostles, as Paul describes himself. And so Luke respects that description that Paul would later give in the, and probably not later, right? The, the book of Acts was probably written after some, at least some, of Paul's epistles, which Luke would have had access to. And uh, Paul describes himself as the least of the apostles, as the one who last of all and least worthily saw Jesus Christ. And so Luke respects that interpretation that Paul has of his own mission and doesn't make a big deal out of the fact that Paul has just suffered the very thing that Stephen suffered, and for the same reason. How much time did Luke spend talking about Stephen's martyrdom? And yet, 
he spent one verse talking about the stoning of Paul and his miraculous healing. He could have spent a lot of, I'm sure he heard firsthand the details of how it went down. He could have spent a lot more time, and he didn't. And that's because he wanted to respect Paul's desire to not have attention drawn to himself. This, this is the way that I read this text, and I think it's fascinating. It gives us a really, really strong insight into the, the personality of Paul. And, uh, you know, if you've ever heard, and I've mentioned it recently, that, that Christian hymn, As I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the lyrics to that hymn are that my glory is not to be paid attention to. It's only the things of Christ that are worth bragging about. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Well, guess where those words come from? They come from the epistles of Paul. These are, these are all Pauline sentiments that we don't boast in anything that we, that we can possibly achieve in this life, but all glory belongs to Christ. This is Paul's attitude. These are his teachings, and they're being respected at this moment by Luke, who is his admirer, his missionary companion, his convert, and his biographer. It's the highest form of compliment that he can pay him is by not making a big deal out of his accomplishments, and thereby uh, Luke is, is giving God the glory, and Paul is able to indirectly give God the glory. That's the way I read it. I think it's wonderful. That leads us to chapter 15. So in chapter 15, this is the story now of general conference, uh, meaning the, the apostles all gather together in Jerusalem, and they're all discussing. Now, now this revelation of, Paul, or of Peter has become so controversial and, and a decision so necessary that they all get together and they, they decide what they're going to do. Uh, So let's just begin. I'm going to read a few verses from Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Meaning, uh, just as we described, you have to be converted first to Judaism, as as we would put it today, right? This is not how they would have put it then. But they would have said, yeah, you want to be converted to the religion of Christ. This is the religion of Christ. He was a Jew. So you first have to be converted to Judaism, and then you can be baptized, and then you're a Christian. And they were perfectly justified in thinking this. It was very rational belief, and yet it had nothing to do with the will of God, right? Once again, they're interpreting the traditions that had been passed down. They're giving undue weight to the traditions that have been passed down that don't have anything to do with the will of God, and they haven't fully understood the scriptures. Now, um, the vision, so I mentioned earlier that the vision of Peter was not a vision about food. And so this leaves some questions unanswered. If Peter was not instructed at that time that Christians could eat whatever they wanted, then why today do we feel okay to eat things that are not included in the law of Moses? Why today do we not perform blood sacrifice in a temple similar to the tabernacle of Moses? Why today do we not travel to Jerusalem three times a year, as Jews are instructed to do in the Old Testament, to uh, celebrate the festivals according to the Law of Moses. Uh, there are other things that we don't do that the Law of Moses would want you to do. So why, you know, why today, for example, are Christians not required to circumcise their children, although um, many in many places they do and in many places they don't? Uh, 
So, what is the answer? The answer is not to be found, I believe, in these chapters. So, Paul wrote a number of epistles to his converts all over the the Hellenistic world, primarily in the Greek-speaking world of the Roman Empire. And he wrote one epistle to the Hebrews. So this was this could be understood by us to be those converts to Christ who had originally been Jewish, had been Jewish before they were converted. As the book of Acts would describe them, this is an epistle to those who are of the circumcision. And what Paul does in that uh, epistle is describe why all of these things are not necessary. And he does it in such a, a fantastic way and so deeply grounded in the Hebrew Scriptures that I won't try to go into it here. We'll, st- we'll study it when we dis- study the book of Hebrews. But the point is, um, that was not Peter's revelation, was that we have to abandon all of these things right now. Uh, this, this becomes more and more clear doctrinally as they deepen themselves in the understanding of the doctrine of Christ. And Paul Paul does a very good I, good job of explaining why it's not necessary and why uh, the, the Melchizedek priesthood, as he calls it, is greater than the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. This is all, these are all ideas that are present in the, in the epistle to the Hebrews and therefore the New Testament. And as Paul points out, there are ideas that are present in the Old Testament as well. Joseph Smith didn't make this stuff up. This is very much a part of the ancient gospel. And uh, it's very clear, once you understand, once it's been explained by someone as knowledgeable as Paul is, it's very clear what God had in mind all along when he instituted the law of Moses, that, that it was always pointing to a new covenant, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 31. So we'll discuss those things when we discuss the book of Hebrews. So right now what we're discussing is simply the idea of how are we going to accept these new converts into our fold when they, aren't, when they don't believe what we believe right now? What is the minimum that they have to believe in order for us all to call ourselves Christians together? And they have this big meeting and they have this big discussion. And the main point is, uh, in, in verse 7, the main point made in the meeting is, When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel. So he tells the the story of how they received, it was obvious that they received the gift of the Holy Ghost right in front of them. He says, God put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. That's verse 9. Now in verse 10, Now therefore... Why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So now Peter makes a very interesting point. So the law of Moses was, um, let's put it this way, the, the covenant of Moses was that if the people of Israel would be obedient, then God would lead them into the promised land and give them all the promises that he'd made to Abraham. He'd fulfill them all. And what happened? They didn't ever do it. They weren't able to keep themselves separate from the people of Canaan. They weren't able to not worship idols. They weren't able to cleanse the land of the Canaanites as God had commanded them to do. And therefore, they were constantly going after false gods. And then they weren't... The the two words that we've talked about many times that the Hebrew prophets were constantly asking for were justice and righteousness. And they were never providing those to their people. 
So the, the whole experiment of the people of Moses, the covenant of Moses and the people of Israel living in the land of Canaan was a giant fail. So this, this is the point that Peter is making. Neither our fathers nor we were able to bear, meaning we, the law of Moses was just too much for us. So why are you going to try to put it on new people when they're trying to come unto Christ who's provided a better way? It, this, is a, this is an astonishing take on the history of the people of Israel. He has uh, he's summed it up in one sentence. And it's obviously inspired by God. I mean, he understands the will of God. I want to point out, uh, for lack of a better place to do it in the lesson, that the final 11 chapters of Isaiah are, uh, many people, many scholars, consider them to be a giant chiasmic poem because similar thematic elements exist in chapter 56 and then are repeated in chapter 66. And then... uh, then other elements are repeated as you get closer into the middle of that section. And the, the concept that starts the section and finishes the section is the idea that all nations will join with Israelites in the New Jerusalem, that, that the ultimate goal of God is not just to save the children of Abraham, but to have everyone be able to join the children of Abraham. And not only be part of the the Israelites. So think about the way that they worshiped in the temple. Only the Levites, only those from the tribe of Levi, could actually officiate in temple ordinances. That was reserved for one tribe only. And what God says in those chapters is, I will take my Levites from among everyone, not just other Israelite tribes, but people that come from other countries altogether. And so first there was the the Samaritans, right? Philip goes to the Samaritans, converts hundreds, if not thousands of them. And then he's led by the Spirit to come back to Jerusalem and then run towards Gaza. And on his way there, he's he's running beside this Ethiopian chariot. And there is not only a stranger, but probably a, uh, a eunuch, somebody who is cut off from having any posterity, which was huge in those days. And he didn't share the same skin color, right? He was uh, as different as could be. He didn't have the same language, didn't have any of it. And Philip was called to convert him to Christ. So the, the point is made right away that you as Christians are being called to stretch your ideas of what you think is acceptable. So what parallels can we draw? Now, one obvious parallel is the revelation of 1978 when the priesthood was extended to all worthy male members. Um, in one sense, this is such a, such a similar revelation, right? Because you look at the events that happened in, this, in the book of Acts and you see that uh, the gospel was never meant to be confined to this one people. It was always meant to be spread abroad to all the world. But what was the reaction in the church, the modern church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1978 when this happened? It was met with Uh, unanimous rejoicing, right? There was nobody who was against this. And there was even a man, um, this isn't general common knowledge, but there was a man in Brazil who was so faithful and was just considered to be so wonderful that everyone who met him, and he was a member of the church, his name is Helvesio Martins, and everyone who met him thought, how can it be possible that someone like this could not have the priesthood? 
and later he became the first black uh, general authority, as everyone knew that he probably would because um, he was he was such a Christ-like man. And a lot of people consider that he was the reason why, or he was the prompting, you know, he, uh, he was known to President Spencer W. Kimball before uh, the revelation of 1978. And so he's very, he's a very obvious parallel to Cornelius, who the pro- whom the prophet was led to and who prompted this revelation, like God has led you here because there's a man there who is worthy of receiving the priesthood and you, you cannot, as, as Peter said, who can forbid me water that these may be baptized? So in one sense, that's a very par- parallel revelation, but on the other sense, there weren't a lot of people who were resistant to that idea at the time. It was met with uh, rejoicing on every, from every side among members of the church. So there is another revelation, a modern revelation, which uh, was very controversial. And I think it's worth mentioning because it would give us a feeling as to how these men who are, quote-unquote, of the circumcision must have felt. And that is Joseph Smith's revelation about plural marriage. Now, um, we have this revelation recorded in the 132nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, but that was not the revelation that was originally given. Uh, So let me put it another way. Joseph Smith didn't record the revelation at the beginning. He recorded it much later, and section 132 is what we have later on. The, the, The first evidence of this revelation was only communicated person to person. And as people began to hear about it, uh, this, this generated a lot of hard feelings among members of the church. They were resistant to it, and the, it was the reason for the vast majority of the persecution that early members of the church felt. So take your feelings that you would have, right, if a prophet were to say today, uh, look, let's live this, this law that they used to live in the Old Testament where they lived a, a lifestyle of plural marriage, and here's another, here's another revelation that would that would give you a similar feeling. If you want to understand how these people must have felt as their whole life is changing, as as the prophet is telling them to do something totally different from their experience, years later, uh, there was the manifesto of Lorenzo Snow where he said, um, "We're no longer going to live this way. We've been living now for over a generation." For two generations, we've been living this law, and everybody has grown up under uh, this this lifestyle of plural marriage. It's separated us from everyone outside of our people. And he was saying, now we're no longer going to do this. And this was so controversial that entire congregations of people left the church over it and formed their own offshoots that still exist today because it was such an important doctrine to them. Now, it's, not, it's outside of the scope of our lesson, but um, we talk a lot about Daniel chapter 2 and 3 and Daniel chapter 7. One of the chapters that um, you almost never hear talked about is Daniel chapter 10 through 12. And Daniel has this vision of the, the time between his own life and the birth of the Savior. And this, this vision is, it's by many scholars, considered to be written hundreds of years later because it's so, it's so, uh, what's the word, detailed in outlining exactly who's going to go where and what person is going to do what at what time. 
Um, but it's also, it, the names are not exact and the dates are not exact, but if you, if you understand ancient Near Eastern history, it fits very similar, it fits, uh, it lines up very closely with the events of uh, the, the few hundred years before Christ. And one of the, the, the Antichrist figures, the, the main bad guy of that vision, is generally considered to be a man named Antiochus. And he was so brutally oppressive of the Jews in their own land, it was illegal to be a Jew in Jerusalem. And this persecution centered around worship in the temple, around circumcision, around the festivals, around all of the things that, that made Jews Jews about um, the way that they ate and the way that they worshiped and the way that they sacrificed. And he profaned the temple. And the Jews decided that they had had enough. They, they had a revolt, the Maccabean revolt, in which they enjoyed their, their only political autonomy for several centuries on either side. This was a huge central part of the Jews' identity, was this revolt and the laws that they were willing to die for. So understand that when they're resisting, the men that are of the circumcision, when they're resisting Peter's revelation, they have all this history behind them. No, look at what our forefathers have sacrificed and died to give us the right to practice Judaism in our own lands and the right to, to do all of these things. And the fact that we have to do them, it's part of our identity. And so that's where the resistance is coming from, right? And on the other side is the will of God and the fact that some of these things were meant to be practiced for a time and then ended. And others of the things were traditions of men from the very beginning and were never commandments of God in the first place. But in, any, but in either case, they were to both come to an end at the pronouncement of the prophet of God. And what a supreme... And that, so understanding uh, the reason I give you the modern perspective of this is so that we can all understand how much courage and humility it would have taken to follow the prophet of God when he makes that kind of pronouncement, like we're leaving this behind, and now we're going to spread the gospel in a better way. We're going to do our missionary work in a better way. We're going to think about our fellow man in a different way. And they also had... Uh, slightly different guidelines, right? They didn't say that you all have to be circumcised. In Acts 15, verse 19, so this is, um, this is the final decision of the council. My sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, meaning they can't eat any food that has been offered to an idol. They can't take an offering to another pagan idol and then eat food. Remember, the Jewish priests, this was their sustenance. When, when the Israelites brought the, their sacrifices to the temple, the Jewish priests sacrificed them and burned parts of them, but other parts they kept, and this was what they ate. The, the Levites were not given lands. All of the tribes were given a certain tract of land within Canaan, except the Levites, their sustenance was to have people bring sacrifices to the temple and give it to a Levite, and the Levite would eat it. This is how they lived. So um, eating a sacrifice was a holy act. And so the point is, you cannot eat anything that was sacrificed to a pagan idol. So that's what that means by abstaining from pollutions of idols. 
Okay, so here we are again in Acts 15.20. We write unto to them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. So in one chapter of Leviticus, it is described the kind of animals you could eat. But in another chapter, but several other chapters of Exodus and Leviticus, it's um, forbidden to eat blood and forbidden to eat things that are strangled. So they're not requiring them to right here this is where they say they they're not required to eat only uh, to to abstain from those foods that are outlined in Leviticus chapter 11 but they are required to obey other parts of the law of Moses right so this is now an, an even further gradual change and they don't say that they have to even be circumcised so they send this letter, and this is a very similar um, custom, as we still have, to get a letter from the First Presidency that goes out to all the churches. And it says in Acts 15, verse 23, they wrote letters after this manner. Um, actually, let's go one verse earlier. It pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch. So um, everyone eventually was pleased by the decision of the of the leaders of the church, but it took some time. It took some work. It took some prayer on their behalf, on their parts to, to be okay with what they'd heard from their church leaders. And especially when they heard Paul describe, or I'm sorry, Peter describe the, the spirit, the gift of the Holy Ghost coming upon the Gentiles that he'd spoken to directly. So here's the content of the letter, which is uh, in verse 24 of Acts 15, for as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you, with words subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, meaning we were all agreed, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. So it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. So these are the commandments, right? And they're saying, no other aspects of the law of Moses are necessary for you. Now understand, this is a different revelation. First, the revelation was that Peter received this vision that he would call no man common. And then it seems like a gradual understanding that has come that the but that teaching the Gentiles requires them to to broaden their willingness to look at the their traditions. And also they had to they had to accelerate their learning as to what was required as far as the law of Moses and what parts that Jesus had come to fulfill. Remember, as early as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had been teaching, I'm not come to take away the law of Moses until all of it shall be fulfilled. So at what point, it seems obvious that the Nephites knew, as soon as they had the sign of Christ's death and resurrection, that they were no longer required to keep the law of Moses. But the, the saints in Jerusalem and in that area, they didn't quite understand it right at the beginning. And this represents their growing understanding that it's, a, it's something that is grievous to be borne. As Peter said, uh, why are we going to lay on them a burden that our fathers couldn't bear and we haven't been able to bear either? 
Why are we going to put that burden on them? And the implication is, it's not a burden that we have to bear any longer. Christ has borne it. As we'll discuss and as we'll learn, Paul describes expertly in the book of Hebrews exactly why it's no longer necessary to bear it. Now, Peter would not have cared that it was difficult if Christ was still requiring that burden to be borne. He would have said, no, this is our job. These are the commandments. We're going to do it. So along with the idea that that our fathers had not borne it properly and we haven't borne it properly, is also the idea that Christ doesn't require it of us. And he had to have received that from the Holy Ghost as well. So what do we learn from these chapters? Number one, we learn that Paul was willing to suffer even unto death, where before he was willing to cause suffering even unto death. That is a strong and powerful testimony of what Christ can do in the hearts of someone once he becomes active and in your heart and once once you allow him in. And number two, this promise that had been extended to the whole world from the time of Isaiah and before, from the time of Abraham, really, and we'll go into a little bit uh, in weeks to come as to what, what that means, the promise of Abraham, how it was extended to all the nations. But now we can see it coming to pass. And thirdly, I wanted to create in your minds a feeling of what it was like, what it would have, what it would have been like to have the prophet change and shift your expectations of what he should say. And then it's so easy for us to read in the scriptures, like, oh, these people were having a hard time with what the prophet said. You know, when are, when are they going to get with the program? Why couldn't they just have understood you always do what the prophet says? I wanted to help all of us get a feeling for why it would have been difficult. Because if we have that feeling for... Um, they, it was difficult for them, and yet they were willing to humble themselves. I guarantee there will come a time in each of our lives when the prophet will ask something of us that will be difficult to take. It will be hard to understand. It will be new. And it may threaten what we thought we knew of the gospel, the way that Joseph Smith has done it, the way Spencer W. Kimball did it, the way Lorenzo Snow did it, and the way Jesus did it, the way Peter did it. That's hard. It's not, it's not always an easy thing to follow the prophet. It's easy when the prophet asks you to do something that you are already doing that other people have a problem with. Um, and I remember things, uh, pronouncements that uh, President Hinckley made about grooming, for example, that I didn't have a problem with. And I heard people say, oh, well, he, should, he shouldn't have said that. It's not any of his business. And I patted myself on the back because I was already doing what President Hinckley said. And that's not the right attitude to have, right? The prophet might ask something of one person today that's hard for them and easy for you. Tomorrow, the prophet might ask something that's hard for you and easy for them. The point is, forgive those who are, who are struggling, have empathy for them and help them, pray for them, and then humble yourselves when it's you. These are, these are prophets of God. The, the clear, clear message of the book of Acts is that the church was always meant to be led by a living prophet. The prophet was never meant to be a one-generational thing where we have the scriptures and then the canon is closed. Otherwise, how could you adapt to such a situation as many people joining the, the church from all different faith traditions, and how do you integrate that? You couldn't do it if you didn't have constant, ongoing revelation 
on the one hand, and then a humble membership of the church to follow that revelation on the other hand. May we, we know that the revelation will continue. We know that this, the keys that are now on the earth will never pass from it. So that part on the one hand will always be present, but will there always be a, a humble membership of the church to follow it? That's a question each of us must answer. May we answer, yes, I will have a humble heart in my own breast. I will follow the example of Paul and be willing to suffer all things in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.